American soul music has had a long and complicated history, and sometimes its most fascinating brushstrokes come from the unlikeliest of places. One such place is the mind of Tom Bell. You can probably hum or sing along to the choruses that Tom Bell wrote, produced, and arranged, because they are among the catchiest and most enduring in all of pop music. Could it be I'm falling in love? You make me feel brand new and the rubber band man. The brain of Tom Bell was full with the makings of hit records and he would find himself the architect of the Philadelphia soul sound, popularized by vocal groups like the Spinners, the Stylistics and the Delphonics. These songs featured shimmering strings, divine harps and ethereal keyboards that seemed like a notable departure from the grit and gristle of the purveyors of Southern rock and soul, like Wilson Pickett or Eddie Floyd. This was because Tom Bell, the understated genius who produced these records, hadn't heard a lick of pop music till he was a teenager. Bell grew up learning and studying classical music, but by the time he'd moved to Philly as a teen, he'd try his hand at backup singing for folks like Kenny Gamble, and the great Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates. It was there in Philadelphia that Bell, along with Kenny Gamble, founded Philadelphia International Records. PIR started off like most soul labels did, drawing from the gospel tradition of the past. But Tom Bell soon filtered this through his own classical prism. He made the string section an essential part of pop and soul. This remarkable achievement shaped not only the Philly sound, but the thousands of hip hop records that would sample it. In my opinion, Tom Bell is every bit as important to music history as Beethoven. He proved that black music is not monolithically linked to any single artistic tradition and that the well from which it springs is deeper than we could have ever imagined. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter and this is American 100. Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100. Welcome, welcome, welcome to American 100, the show where we talk about the random and not-so-random beauty of music. My name is Micah, and this is my trusted robot companion, Rando. Hi, everyone. At the end of every episode, Rando randomly decides on two songs to discuss for the following episode. 
Rando selects two numbers and a year, and we break down the songs from the Billboard year-end Hot 100 chart that correlate with those numbers. On the last episode, Rando chose the numbers 5 and 93 on the Hot 100, and the year 1982, which correlate with Centerfold by Jay Giles Band and What's Forever For by Michael Murphy. Our special guest tonight is scholar, composer, musician, engineer, and producer Tristan Gianola. But first, let's take a hop, skip, and a jump back to the year that Beastmaster came out, 1982. Juxtaposition is one of pop music's tried-and-true tricks of the trade. When it was used in jazz, the first genre of American popular music, the technique of pitting upbeat-sounding melodic sensibilities versus downbeat and sometimes downright depressing lyricism proved to be highly effective. Music listeners were drawn to this clever juxtaposition, as they would be any great literary irony. Voltaire, Mary Barber, Douglas Adams. Yet for some reason, popular music would take a turn for the less nuanced and more unabashedly straightforward. Mr. The music of the 1950s leaned into earnestness, largely with trite results. But a young product of this time, Robert Zimmerman, saw it his divine duty to rebel against the stale display and reinsert the sneer and snark back into pop music. Sometimes it gets so hard, you see. I'm just sitting here beating on my trumpet. Bob Dylan's countercultural sarcasm would bleed into the bowl that Britain's best loved musical group would drink from. Only they'd turn it into a concoction that was something much sweeter. Juxtaposition at its best, an upbeat rocker opening with the line, I think I'm gonna be sad. The Beatles took Dylan's ethos and mellowed it a bit. They infused it with a different kind of wit, something more gentle and slightly more British. And their music became the basis for an entirely new genre of modern pop rock. This is power pop, a term allegedly coined by Pete Townsend, 
and a genre of music defined by juxtaposing emotional complexity and lyrical pathos with bright, infectious melodies. Nick Lowe, heard here, may have constructed the quintessential power pop mission statement in this song, Cruel to be Kind. But the true engineers of power pop were a band from Cleveland, Ohio. This is the band Raspberries, and there was a time that everybody wanted to be like them. And it's easy to see why. Their 1972 self-titled album opens with this juggernaut of a pop song, Go All The Way. It hit number five on the Billboard chart and proved that this brand of post-Beatles McCartney chunky pop rock music could yet again be commercially successful. From the seed that Raspberries planted, grew a slew of records by bands like Badfinger, Big Star, The DBs, Cheap Trick, and at the tail end of the power pop movement, when it had meshed inevitably with New Wave, the year 1982 gave us this hit by Jay Giles Band. Written by Seth Justman and Peter Wolf, Centerfold became a gold single primarily on the power of this hallway reverb instrumental hook and the swagger of lead singer Peter Wolf. Wolf was the embodiment of power pop cool, and when he was recruited by guitarist Jay Giles, he practically transformed the band from a blues outfit into the pop group that jukebox warriors are familiar with today. Now, power pop is a very male-dominated genre, and unfortunately, Centerfold's main lyrical theme is a problematic manifestation of this. The speaker encounters his high school crush in an adult magazine and is aghast and maybe even heartbroken. This is an incredible display of entitlement. For all of its barroom sing-along quality, its faux new wave synthy sensibilities, it breaks under the weight of its own silly meditations on objectification. That, of course, didn't keep Centerfold from becoming a defining hit of the late 1970s and early 1980s, and it would reach number five on the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of 1982. By the early 1980s, power pop would fade out of the mainstream and bury itself in the indie rock scene. There, it would re-emerge in the form of Teenage Fan Club, The Pixies, and Weezer. 
Jay Giles' band were the predecessor for these bands in genre only. Because while they gave us a head-bopping classic that is marred by male entitlement, bands like Teenage Fan Club, The Pixies, and Weezer owe more to acts like Big Star, Nick Lowe, and the founding fathers of the genre, Raspberries. And these acts explored the depths and the irony of male vulnerability, a far more compelling topic. Juxtaposed against Jay Giles' band, I'm reminded of this Raspberry song, Don't Want to Say Goodbye, where instead of being owed a damn thing by the object of the singer's affection, the lead singer here says, I'm gonna try a little harder. Coming up, a lesson in reincarnation. You're listening to American 100. There are only two kinds of levees, those that have failed and those that will fail. This is an old adage used by engineers to describe the futility of flood walls meant to beat back the forces of nature. Most New Orleanians would agree with this statement. They might also agree with the slightly altered version. There are only two kinds of pumps, those that have failed and those that will fail. Paving everything and having the water shoot into canals and culverts and drainage as quick as we possibly can get it is not the answer. That, you know, exacerbates the problem as far as I can tell from what I've read, the little bit of learning I've done. You know, pumping it out is only part of the solution to this problem. New Orleans is a city surrounded by water and studded with infrastructure meant to push the water out. But despite its best efforts, the streets continue to flood, a constant reminder that the Delta is hungry to reclaim the land that humans have taken from it. You know, big storms are, are few and far between down here, but flooding is a, a constant. You're always going to have to deal with that year in and year out. Even those minor rainstorms are causing streets to flood. Down here, it's just, it seems like it's a way of life that you need to figure out how to manage the water. But as the city sinks further and the effects of climate change steadily advance, the problem is only intensifying. And with overburdened and outdated infrastructure, New Orleans is in a fight that it cannot win. From the crooked cobbles of the French Quarter to the marbled halls of Washington, debates rage over whether fight the water until the end, or to wave the white flag and let the city sink back into the swamp. I mean, if we're going to adapt and live here in this landscape, we really have to find a way to coexist with the, with, with the delta, with, like as a functioning part of the ecosystem. But what if neither of these scenarios happened? What if the city gives up on achieving victory over water and instead focuses on coexisting with it? On River Runs Backwards, we take a deep dive into local stories to see how the city is faring in its age-old flood fight and reveal history on how the city manages its water and the benefits of letting the water back in. Find River Runs Backwards on cicadaradio.com or wherever you listen to your podcast.
Sometimes songs become precious artifacts, chiseled by a stonemason and released into the universe. When they make their ways into the hands of performers, they take on new lives, new meaning. And sometimes they make it farther into the universe than the original songwriter could have ever imagined. The hero of this story, the stonemason, is Rafe Van Hoy. Master of the storytelling country rock yarn, Rafe Van Hoy got his first Nashville publishing contract at age 17 and soon began writing hits for Nashville's biggest country pop stars. Van Hoy palled around with folks like Eagles and Jackson Brown, so his songwriting isn't necessarily strictly country. But by the late 1970s, not much was. His composition, What's Forever For, found itself in the hands of several different performers who told the same story in the many different languages of country music. Countrypolitan is the name given to a subgenre of country music that emerged from Nashville in the late 1960s and early 1970s. During this period, country record executives and producers were reeling due to the peaking popularity of rock and roll and pop music and needed a solution. Their answer was to blend folk, pop, and country into a triumphant amalgamation. And it worked. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge this is the great unassuming emperor of this new country fusion, Mr. John Denver. Denver, along with Charlie Pride, Chris Christofferson, and Crystal Gale, who we talked about way back in episode two, all had number one hits with this Nashville fusion style, and they would bring country music into the pop world, where it would remain for the next 50 years. This was good news for folks like Rafe Van Hoy, whose success as a songwriter was often dependent on the commercial viability of the performer that chose his work. And it doesn't get much more accessible than Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis picked up Van Hoy's composition, What's Forever For, and performed it in the countrypolitan style. But at the end of the 1970s, during the rise of disco, power pop, and new wave, Johnny Mathis's style of schmaltz wasn't going to cut it. The rendition performed by Anne Murray, on the other hand, comes a little bit closer to what Van Hoy intended. I really like this version. It's sweet, nostalgic, and has a familiar, delicate nature. But like Mathis's version, it seems a touch too kind. 
The extremely popular and extremely Canadian Anne Murray had pushed too far into the world of adult contemporary to have an honest-to-goodness country hit with What's Forever For. Rafe Van Hoy's tune would have yet another life with England Dan and John Ford Coley in 1979. Their version is the most confident of them all, but this is more of a curse than a blessing. England Dan and John Ford Coley were unabashed purveyors of guitar-centric light rock for the masses. And with all this sparkly yacht rock production, their version wouldn't stand a chance on the country charts. It's becoming obvious that what this song really needed was an outlaw. Enter Michael Martin Murphy. Born in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, deep in the heart of country and western, Michael Martin Murphy was the master of lonesome cowboy songs. In fact, his 1990 album would be the most successful album of cowboy songs in a generation. And he'd also write New Mexico's state ballad, Land of Enchantment. Here was a true blue rancher. And one night, he stumbled into an open mic where our hero Rafe Van Hoy was strumming a song that he wrote for a couple friends of his. His friends had recently divorced, and Rafe had thought that they would last forever. Michael Martin Murphy had perhaps heard this song before, but he had never heard it quite like this spare and melancholic. The song was What's Forever For, and in the hands of Michael Murphy, it would have its fourth reincarnation and its most successful. I've been looking at people And how they change with the time And lately all I've been seeing are people throwing love away and losing their minds. Instead of the customary radio-friendly instrumental intro, Michael Murphy cuts right to the chase. This gives the song a chance to cut right to the bone. It also gives the song a sense of solitude, a lonesome desperado, relating a sad tale to anyone who listen. The coyotes, the campfire, or the stars. So what's the glory in living? Doesn't anybody ever stay together Michael Murphy's approach works, particularly because it's not an act. Michael Murphy is an actual cowboy. He's a longtime defender of Western lifestyle and conservation. So his leathery voice delivery rings true and genuine in this rendition of Van Hoy's tune. 
You'll also notice that though the recording definitely has dynamic highs and lows, it never quite explodes as other renditions of the song tended to. This is definitely the right move on the part of producer Jim Ed Norman, longtime producer, in fact, of Anne Murray. It drives home the point of What's Forever For. This is a song about divorce and disillusionment, and heartbreak is no grand feeling. After several renditions and attempts to bring Rafe Van Hoy's song to life, Michael Murphy finally stuck the landing by simply being genuine. And What's Forever Four's cycle of reincarnation was finally complete. Coming up, we talk to the multi-talented Tristan Gianola. You're listening to American 100. Hey folks, thanks for listening to American 100. I'm Micah McKee and I wrote the original music for this show and produced it along with Asher Griffith. And if you like content like this, then uh, think about dropping something in our jar. Head over to patreon.com slash cicada radio. Even a pledge of as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. We do this show because we love music and we love radio. So head to patreon.com slash cicada radio and help us out if you can. Thanks. Originally from Seattle, Washington, Tristan Gianola is one of my favorite musical minds. He's a composer, musician, engineer, and producer. He's also one of my favorite folks to work with here in New Orleans. We had a lengthy conversation about the many flavors of pop music, engineering techniques, and the Velvet Underground. Here's a little bit of it. And I was, you know, maybe a little interested in your musical background as far as pop music goes and where the pop music intersects with uh, rock music for you. Like I've always been really into um, power ballads and hair metal and whatnot. And when I've looked a lot of that music where I see it having the pop element is like the way that it was marketed, advertised it was for like big crowds, lots of big budgets as well. Um, Not so much about like, the rock side of it you know still all these glamorous outfits and whatnot that just kind of like screamed popular music so initially that's why i thought about them and i you know looked into it a little i was like oh okay that's not really lining up and when i think about my first encounter that i can really remember with pop music um was through listening to music with my parents and um peter gabriel so was probably like the first pop album that like i really remembered and it draws a lot of different musical subtleties and whatnot. But then when I think of a song like um, Sledgehammer off that album, that's kind of like, sounds like power pop to me. I mean, that song like thumps, it's really like in your face. And it just like, you know, when I think power, that that's the kind of sound that was coming to mind as well as being balanced in power pop. This show has done something for me. It's kind of 
forced me to look at subgenres in a way that I never looked at them before. Sometimes with the subtleties of genre. So maybe this could be a little helpful. When I think as a composer, I break music down to five fundamental things. Um, there's melody, there's harmony, there's rhythm, there's structure, and then there's timbre, you know, AKA sound, whether it be the kind of guitar you use or extended technique on a cello, you know, but just sound, but that can also translate to what kind of board they're using, how they produce it, how they master it. And those kind of details of, um, sound again that phrase you might not have noticed it but your brain did i borrow that from red letter media when they talk about films like those things can really shape music in a subtle but very defining way one band that i've been thinking about more um lately um modest mouse they really trip me out with their production because it inherently kind of sounds lo-fi and garagey. And these terms lo-fi and garagey take us back to like the subcategory language. Yet when you listen in closely on their music, you can really hear every detail of every cymbal hit. Like the sound is so polished and so clear, so it's not really that lo-fi, but they just kind of have this inherent flavor on it that makes you want to put it in some sort of specialized category that's indicative to what you're hearing so precisely. Nick Lowe is considered to be like a really big voice in the power pop world. And thinking about this juxtaposition of lyrics that are emotionally um, contrasting to the music that they're set to, as I was looking up, um, I found out that he wrote that song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, that Elvis Costello is known for singing. Um, yeah, and even that one, I mean, it's a little easier to figure out that it's kind of a bummer of a song, but, you know, nonetheless, it's just kind of like a nice song that bounces around where if you took those lyrics out of it, you really wouldn't expect something that's like so somber and reflective and existential. That music, it, it's almost very passive aggressive, which the Pacific Northwest is known for, where a lot of Kurt Cobain's lyrics um, were all just kind of, I want to say almost like ambivalent, sarcastic, it's sad, but I'm not really going to express how sad I am because I actually don't care. I know Nirvana is the epitome of grunge in most people's minds, but that's where I do see being power pop as well. I mean, the same way that it's produced too. 
So the um, engineer for Nirvana's Nevermind actually was lying to Kurt Cobain about um, some of the guitar tracking they were doing, and he because he just wasn't satisfied with the tone, so he was just like, "Yeah, sorry, um, Pro Tools glitched, or you know, oh, that sounded kind of weird," and just kept making Kurt like retrack, retrack over and over again with different amps, different pedals, and then a combination of like five or six of these guitar tracks made the sound on it. So I kind of wanted to ask you uh, for a few examples of uh, songs that you think achieve juxtaposition in a thought-provoking and interesting way. Ten Years After's I'd Love to Change the World is just a, kind of almost a frightening tune. Everywhere is freaks and hairs, dykes and fairies. I'd like to say now... It's interesting because you could box it into like sad or negative lyrics meet sad music. I mean, it is in a minor key, you know, and the harmonies themselves do kind of create this sense of sorrow that's inherently in the lyrics as well. But that's where I know in basic music theory, you know, they say major is happy, minor is sad. And it, it really just doesn't work that way. It's so nuanced because it has keep talking about these like five fundamental elements of music is like things always interact with each other and I thought about the song too after reading about Pete Townsend coining the term because when I think Alvin Lee and 10 years after I mean they kind of do have this vibe of the who and when I listen to this song and I've watched like live version of it because they played at Woodstock in 69 I mean, it's like a really like driving rock song. I could see myself just kind of having fun jamming out to it and feel good, but not inherently feel sad. Life is funny, skies are sunny. One of the first songs that I thought of when you asked me about this, um, I mean, I've never been a big avid listener of the Velvet Underground, but I had a bartender at work who had um, played an Andy Warhol album, and he would always light up when All Tomorrow's Parties came out. just love how like it, it sounds like a very like festive song even the way that Nico is singing on that it's almost like her voice is imitating like medieval trumpets like doing fanfare like it just kind of sounds jubilant and celebratory and then when you read the lyrics about it I mean I guess this girl who's down on her luck with a really really bad time and just kind of alone in this party. I mean, 
Her, her story is really sad, but it's interesting because the music is so jubilant. It's as if the music itself is the party, which takes the listener into that party. And then as you listen to the lyrics, it's almost like, yeah, you're looking at that girl in the corner over there and sure you're having a good time at your party, but you're like, oh, well, what's that? Is she okay? Drugs by Talking Heads. Yeah. All of those interesting interlocking riffs that they have just bouncing around, I mean, it is just such a fun song. And the real-life situations that that could actually translate to of having a family member or a close one who's hooked on drugs or alcohol or, in modern times thinking, is like a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Yeah, speaking of this uh, contrast, I wrote all of my my notes for this meeting on what seems to be a nice lovely letter but has my electrical bill inside <laughs> what a contrast that is great it looks great i might even want to open it it makes me feel good to get a letter i feel special but <laughs> to contrast what's inside it's probably bad news <laughs> that is so great Once again, we thank Tristan for coming by the show and offering his incredible insight on music. You can check out his music at tristangianola.bandcamp.com. Well, it's that time, Rando. Time to randomly select the two songs and the year that we're going to discuss for the next episode of American 100. Commencing randomization. The year 1959 and the numbers 69 and 95 which correlate with Baby Talk by Jan and Dean and So Fine by The Fiestas. American 100 is produced by me, Micah McKee, along with Asher Griffith and is, of course, presented by Cicada Radio. And today we're going to leave you with a little bit of power pop. Emmett Rhodes is one of the most underappreciated artists of post-Beatles pop, and this tune is one of my favorites. It's called Somebody Made For Me. From all of us at American 100, thanks for listening. And always keep a song in your heart. Somewhere someone special must be. Somewhere someone special just for me. Somewhere someone special must be. Somebody made fun. This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.